Hello and welcome to Behind the Bearcat. This is the podcast where the Northwest Missouri State University Career Services Office chats with Northwest faculty, staff, students, alumni, and friends, hear about their career journeys, how they got to where they are, and how they became Bearcats. I'm Northwest Internship Coordinator, Travis Klein. And I'm the Assistant Director of Career Services, Hannah Christian. And on today's podcast, we have a previous Bearcat who graduated with a degree in broadcasting with a minor in geography, uh, who then went on to get a JD from UC Irvine. He is a commercial real estate attorney, and we are super happy to have him on this podcast as a guest. Welcome, Tracy Steele. It's great to be here. Thank you. (laughs) I have to be my own audience, and that that makes me feel kind of funny. But welcome, Tracy. Thanks. So and I, uh, and I, and let me jump in and, and just say, um, not a former Bearcat. I think, what? I think the saying is Present once a Bearcat, bearcat always, a bearcat. always a Bearcat. That's right. Yeah. You might have to fix that, Travis. Distinguished Bearcat. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So my first question often, I, I just really love this question is Tracy, what was your very first job? My very first job, uh, I would have to say it was mowing yards, um, as a, I, gosh, maybe a, 12 year old. I, I don't know when I started mowing yards uh, for a few bucks in the summer. And then that expanded a little bit. I, I got a, a couple of gigs mowing cemeteries doing that kind of work in the summers. Uh, my first job with a paycheck, I think was at a feed store in my hometown. I'm from Grant City, Missouri. So the some thriving might, metropolis of Grant that's, City. That's right. Yeah, I'm not sure what the latest population numbers are, but when I graduated from high school, the population was 990. My high school class had 30 kids in it. So, you know, one of those really small rural Northwest Missouri towns. Um, And I, yeah, I worked at the feed store in town, you know, schlepping 50 pounds of whatever, you know, onto the truck. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You know, so that was, that was a good job. Made me a few bucks. Um, In high school, I, I had a lot of little odd jobs. I, I worked at the nursing home doing janitorial work on weekends. I was a waiter at the steakhouse at the uh, sale barn. Again, one of those really small town kind of phenomenon. You know, there was a sale barn where livestock uh, is sold and there was a little cafe in there and someone got the idea that they were going to upgrade it from a cafe to a steakhouse and serve a little more expensive food that probably was a little pricey for Grant City. It didn't last too long, but the food was fantastic and it was a fun job. So, yeah, I did a little bit of everything in high school and... uh, so you were involved in that vertical completely. You threw the feed on the truck and then you they butchered right. the cow and then you fed it to them. Yeah, that's right. And so I, I definitely, <laughs> I was part of that whole cycle for sure. So how did you, how did you get to Northwest? I mean, you're from Grant City, which is not far from here, but right. why did you choose Northwest and why did you choose broadcasting as a major? The, the two decisions were very much related. My senior year of high school, I was still trying to figure out what am I going to do when I grow up? What's my major going to be in college? And um, I was struggling with it. I didn't have any clear direction. I didn't have, I, the one thing I knew I didn't want to do was to be a farmer. You know, I wanted to get out of Grant City and see the world and do some different things. Took one of those career evaluation, you know, survey things and it kind of showed me that a lot of my interests were really aligned with broadcasting. I was interested in politics. I was interested in current events. I was interested in sports. And being a broadcaster gives you an opportunity to have a taste of all of that, to play a role in those processes. 
And at the same time, I was trying to figure out where am I going to go to school. And sure, money was a factor in that. Came from, you know, a comfortable family, but certainly not wealthy. And I had the good fortune of accumulating some scholarship money at Northwest over the years in high school through, you know, the Science Olympiad and some other some other events in high school. So Northwest was a really smart choice for me in terms of finances. And then once I started to think about broadcasting as a, you know, as a serious uh, idea for my major, and I looked at the program at Northwest, you know, I realized that they had a great program. And, you know, I had the choice between Northwest and Mizzou, you know, realistically, those were the two options. And, you know, I came to the realization that if I go to Mizzou, I'll have a very well-known reputation behind my school, but probably not going to get the kind of hands-on experience that was being offered at Northwest. At Northwest, it was, you know, you'll have an opportunity to jump in in your very first semester and you'll be producing, you know, radio programs and television programs and it will be hands-on and you won't have to stand in line and you won't be a number, you know, just a face in the crowd. You'll have a chance to really get some good hands-on experience. And for all those reasons kind of combined, Northwest made a lot of sense. So that's where I went and I'm really glad I did. It was a good choice for me. What were you involved with uh, when you started at Northwest? Were you on the radio side, the TV side? Did you do a little bit of both? Both, yeah. I did a little bit of everything. Back then, the student station was KDLX. I think the name has changed a little bit now. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, one semester, I was sports director. Another semester, I was news director. I was station manager for a semester. Uh, in fact, President Jasinski was our advisor, and uh, he and I worked, I think, in maybe the early days of the process of converting the station from cable broadcasting to an actual over-the-air station. Obviously, that took quite some time, and I wasn't around for the end of the process, but I think I was involved in the start. Uh, So I did a lot of work on the radio side, also worked at KXCV for several semesters and really enjoyed my time there, too, in a little bit more of a professional setting. Uh, but I also did a lot of work on the TV side, hosted parades and did basketball games and football games. And, and in addition to that, I also managed to, to snag a couple of gigs doing radio for a couple of the area stations. I did high school games for Can out of Bethany and Can I Am there in Maryville. So I got quite a bit of experience doing, uh, doing radio work during college. The uh, 92 presidential election, we heard that KQTV was looking for uh, just some bodies to come down and help, you know, run results from the newsroom to the studio or whatever. And so I jumped at the chance to do that. And late at night when defenses were down, I snuck into the news director's office and asked him if I could get an internship in the spring. And he said, sure. So I, I started working there in the spring of 93. And when my internship hours were... Uh, exhausted, he just started paying me. I started working part-time and then uh, started doing the weekend sports. And then even before I got out of school, I I was anchoring, I think at that point I was anchoring the weekend news. They moved me from sports to news and I was reporting a couple of days during the week, kind of taking a part-time schedule to finish up my hours at Northwest. So I think um, that's a key point that we haven't, we haven't heard 
from too many other people, but you know, we, people try to figure out like, how do I get an internship? Students come in and ask us this all the time. And, and there are lots of different ways to get an internship, but I think that's a really good example of you get an internship when you see that opportunity, whether it's, you know, Hey, I can slip in and just talk to this person um, or I can volunteer and then, you know, kind of build a relationship and get in there. The ones who find internships the fastest are sometimes the ones who just make those opportunities and then, you know, take that initiative to go in and, and carpe that DM. Right. And I was lucky to have the the opportunity, that opening to be able to go in. And I think, you know, I worked really hard that night. I wanted to make sure that, you know, I did everything exactly the way that they asked us to do it. And and then, you know, the news director was a really nice guy, so it made it easy, but it was definitely my plan for that night. I mean, I wasn't going to to get the six hours of $5 an hour or whatever it was they paid us. It was, you know, I was there to try to parlay that into something more. And and it transitioned um, well for you. Yeah, absolutely. In a small market like that, any warm body is appreciated. So unlike an internship at a TV station in Kansas City, for example, I was doing work on the air as an intern. They, you know, here, go cover this, go put a story together and we'll put it on the air if it's not terrible. And some of them were pretty terrible. I, you know, I definitely was learning on the job, but I was able to give them a hand at a really low cost. And that was something that they appreciated. And I think up until that point, you know, there had been maybe some Northwest students who went to that station, but I don't think people had figured out that that was an opportunity. And after I worked there that spring and then continued to work, on after that, I was still working there in the summer. There were maybe a half dozen Northwest students who got internships there in the summer. And that happened to be the summer of the flood of 1993, which was by far the biggest news event that had happened in Northwest Missouri, you know, to that point in decades. And all of them were on the air all the time. I mean, we were, we were all just driving, you know, hundreds of miles a day because there was more news than could possibly ever be covered. So then everybody got all of this great experience and it, you know, worked out really well for the station and for us. I was there in the late nineties, early two thousands at, at Northwest. And there were several of the TV students who did stuff for KQ2, not just as interns, but I remember there was one of my classmates, he did the morning show, he produced it. So he'd get up at four in the morning, drive to St. Joe, do the morning show, then come take classes all day. And so you opened a door that continues, I think to this day to be used. So Thank you well, for that. I'll speak for them and say thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. I, I didn't do anything special there. You know, it was very much self-serving, but I think especially a lot of the kids who come to Northwest from, you know, bigger cities, that's where they think that they want to work. Um, and so that's where they think they want to do their internship. And certainly there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with, you know, doing an internship at one of the Kansas City stations or, you know, in Omaha or Des Moines or, or whatever. But you're just not going to get the same kind of experience, the same kind of, you know, hands-on work where you can actually, so in television news, you're, you're always looking for the next job and to get the next job, you're putting together a tape. It's a system that's not unlike baseball with the minor leagues. You, you have to work your way up from the bottom of the ladder to the top and you start in a small market and you put together a tape that shows that you know what you're doing and then you get the job at the next market you know, next tier of, of the market system. And, and if you do an internship in Kansas City, you might be able to fake a story or two using 
video that was shot for someone else, but you're not actually doing the work. You're, it's not your work and it's not as effective and beneficial. So it worked out well for me. I, I worked at that station for a couple of years and then went from doing on-air work. I was, you know, I was anchoring the weekend news. I'd also um, anchored the morning news. And by the way, hearing that there's a producer, there was no producer when I was anchoring the morning news there. It was me. And, you know, I was writing and taping the scripts together for the teleprompter and, you know, editing the video, doing basically everything. So that's pretty cool that they now have producers for the morning news. They did then. Um, I don't know I, now, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. I went from there to a station in Toledo, Ohio as a producer. So I moved from an on-air position to off-air. I was impatient. I was just really itching to get to a bigger market. And again, I saw an opportunity. I saw that I could jump markets more quickly as a producer than I could as a reporter or an anchor. So that's what I did. And I ended up finding a job with a station that was in the process of being purchased by the ABC network. So I was able to move into an O&O station. And then after a couple of years there, jumped to their station in Houston. And I spent nine years in Houston at the ABC owned station there. That still was, pr still know, producing? Yeah, producing the news, you know, at various times, the mornings, the weekends, the 6 p.m., the 10 p.m., did a little bit of everything there. Did that for nine years. And then, you know, I was getting itchy. I wanted to wanted to do something different thought that it was time for me to try to dip my feet into being in management and i got a job as an executive producer at channel nine in kansas city kmbc and i uh, did that for three years then at the end of that contract i decided to try law school so that's how i ended up at uc irvine so quick question for you tracy not a only non-broadcasting major here. <laughs> What's the difference between producing and then being an executive producer? Your paycheck. The executive producer. <laughs> well, that's, a, that's part of it for sure. The executive producer is the manager. In an ideal situation, you'll have a team of producers and writers. A lot of stations, basically every station has trimmed their ranks down. So that's not always true anymore. But in the old school framework, you would have an executive producer managing uh, a shift of producers and associate producers and news writers. And the executive producer is leading the news coverage for that uh, day part, basically. And their boss would be the news director. Uh, depending on the station, they might have an assistant news director as well in the chain of command. But basically, the executive producer is the similar to the editor of the newscast for that day part, it, you know, to compare it to a newspaper situation. And the news director would be the editor in chief. The executive producer is, you know, responsible for everything. You're, you're trying to keep an eye on every script to make sure that no factual errors are getting through, that the stories you're covering are the, the correct stories to be working on for that day. And that the general kind of type of coverage that you're doing fits with your strategy that you know what you're looking to do uh, I was on the morning news at KNBC so morning news is a little different from you know all of the other times of the day because you're you're more of a hybrid between hard news and a little bit more infotainment you're you're trying to do some stories that appeal to you know families and maybe some entertainment type news and and that sort of thing and you're really focused on weather and traffic and it's you have goals of trying to keep viewers for 
maybe an extra 15 minutes by, you know, pulling them through to the weather in the next segment. And you're, you know, that's, that's part of producing a newscast in general, but in the morning it's, you know, it's, it's especially challenging because, you know, people are on their own schedules, you know, they're trying to get to work. So you're, you're trying to give them the information they need, but you're also trying to get them to stick around as long as you can. Did you also hire, did you hire the producers or the associate producers then? Yeah. You know, I was involved in, you know, going through the tapes and the resumes and doing interviews and then kind of taking it to the news director and saying, this is who I think we should hire. And so, yeah, for the morning news, I was basically in charge and for better or for worse, you know, if it worked out well, it was to my benefit, but if something went wrong, it was, you know, it was definitely my responsibility. So any insight, I mean, we just had a student last fall who worked in our office who had uh, an internship in Kansas City and wants to work in that environment. Do you have any insight since you act, you hired people for that industry, um, what students can do to help themselves out? The first thing that comes to mind maybe isn't as applicable to this student because they've already had their internship, but there are good interns and then there are the rest of the interns and the good ones are proactive right? They don't give you the chance to forget that they're there. As an executive producer, the last thing that was on my mind was making sure that the interns were fed and happy. They were there, but unless they were really in my face and just proactive and taking charge and doing the uh, going above and beyond, I would forget that they existed because on a day-to-day basis, you just don't have time to, to worry about that. And I think knowing that is really beneficial for an intern. From the intern's perspective, this is a really cool opportunity, right? You, you think, you know, I've made it. This is the big time. I'm working, you know, in a mid-major market TV station. I'm right here with all these people who I've been watching on TV for years. And it's easy to just kind of sit back and watch. And that's not a beneficial experience, really. But if you can figure out ways that you can make yourself useful, and then all of a sudden you're not just the intern, you're, you're Janet. You're, this woman is on the ball. She knows what she's doing. She's someone we can depend on and ask to do real work. And at the end of the summer or the end of the semester, when, um, you know, when it comes time not just to evaluate, but also to provide letters of recommendation, that's someone who's going to stand out. And, you know, as an executive producer, I, that's someone who I would make an effort to help, you know, not just provide a pro forma letter, but to, you know, pick up the phone and talk to a friend at another station and say, hey, this is someone you should look at. I mean, as an intern, that's really what your, your goal should be. That's why you're there. Um, is to make those connections, to develop that network and develop a reputation that is going to be beneficial for the rest of your career. After the internship, while you're still, you know, looking for work, it's, that's tough. And that's where you really need to have that network. And this is true in every field, but I think in TV, especially if you're waiting to see the job listings show up, that's probably not going to work out well for you. And I think a lot of people will, you know, they'll put together a package of like 200 tapes and resumes and just send them out to every newsroom. That's not, that's not effective either because no one has the time to sit there and watch an unsolicited tape from somewhere in the middle of Missouri. You know, that's not the way that they, you know, they don't have time for that. They really don't. And, but what is effective is developing that network and then getting your contact to set up an introduction, 
have them call their friend, the executive producer, at, you know, WXYZ or whatever, and say, hey, this kid is really smart and she is really aggressive. And I think you should look at her for, you know, any opportunity you have. I think she's ready to be hired to do blank. And then when you send the tape and the resume, they'll actually look at it. Um, if you don't have that kind of network, then that's what you should be focused on developing, setting up just informational interviews wherever you can, um, just leveraging every bit of help that you can get, basically. That's super good insight, because I think sometimes that's a little the the flipped, you know, I'm just going to send all this out. And that's kind of, I guess, intuitively, you know, this is good stuff or whatever. They don't realize, they don't have that perspective of the person who's really busy. And this is kind of, I don't have the time for that. That's, that's really good, especially for students. Yes. I think, yeah, thank you. I, I think, you know, the modern era to it's the broadcasting industry has changed dramatically even since I left in 2009. And most of the changes have been, you know, to cut staffing even more. And that means everybody's stretched even, you know, more thinly. And yeah, there's, there's just not an opportunity for anyone to, to really be spending a lot of time looking at um, unsolicited tapes and resumes. It's just, you know, everybody is just trying to hold on and, you know, the keep your head above water because you don't have enough people to get the job done as it is. So, all right, let's talk about law school. Mm -hmm. So you're executive producing in Kansas City. What made you want to go to law school? What was that thought process? You must have been a much better student in com law than I ever was. (laughs) It was a lot of fun. Shout out to Fred. (laughs) That's right. I love taking classes with Fred. So uh, that was one of my favorite for sure. Law was something that I'd always kind of had in the back of my mind. You know, I was frustrated with just kind of the day-to-day frustration from work. You know, it was a little bit of a grind, especially on the morning shift. And I'd been working mornings off and on for 12 years or so. And if you've ever worked that kind of overnight shift where you're getting up at midnight and going into work, it wears on you. So I was at the end of my contract and I had, I had actually taken the LSAT while I was in Houston when I was trying to figure out what I was going to do then. And, you know, I, I had taken it, I had a pretty good score and those scores, I believe, last five years. So, you know, it was sitting there in my back pocket and it was, you know, on the verge of expiring and the timing seemed right. So I, so I started looking, started applying just kind of to see what would happen, did a little bit of investigating and, you know, figured out the type of school that I could expect to get into with my grades and my LSAT score. And, and then one night I was at work, you know, just scrolling through the wires, looking for interesting stories to add into the newscast. And I see this little blurb about a new law school in California that was just about to open and as a way to make a splash, they were giving scholarships to their entire first class, full scholarships, full tuition for three years. And, you know, that obviously sounded pretty interesting to someone in my position. I had, you know, I had two kids and didn't really want to take on a bunch of debt. So I dug in and liked what I saw. So I applied there and that was one of the schools that, accepted me. So that was actually the only visit that I made to an out-of-state school was to UC Irvine. I was very interested in it. And then for their admitted students weekend, and it was, they did a great job of selling us on the school and the community and the idea of this school that didn't even exist yet. They were 
in the process of building the law library and putting in classrooms in the education building, you know, to, for the law school. And there are some internet forums for prospective law students and they tend to get pretty snarky. And the general consensus was you're an idiot if you go to UCI. Why would you take that risk? Why would you, you know, of all the options out there, why would you go to this school? It's not ranked. It's not accredited. It's, it doesn't even exist yet. Why would you do that? So there were about 60 of us who were in that first class and it was, uh, it, it very much felt like uh, us against the world kind of situation. And it created a really close family type bond between the students. And it ended up being a great fit for me. And um, I was lucky to uh, have the chance to be a part of it. Wow, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, it worked out really well. And the goal from day one was, you know, we're going to be a top 20 school and everybody laughed at that. And they're not quite top 20 yet, but they I think they are in the top 25, which is unheard of. No one's ever started for such a school. young school. Yeah. Wow. So, okay. When, so you do commercial real estate transactions, or that's, you're kind of a transactional guy when you're right. in law school. So what type of experiences did you have in law school or did you know that's what you wanted to do or how did you develop this uh, sort of path? So law school is still, it's still very much influenced by the old kind of Harvard model where everything is taught by case study. So you, you read opinions which are written by appellate judges about cases. And that, that's how you learn about the various legal principles. And that's all coming from a litigation kind of point of view. That's all, you know, that all of the opinions, of course, are about cases that have been litigated. So your focus is 100% on the side of litigation. And then when you start looking for a job, you realize that most legal jobs do not involve litigation. That's not where the money is. The money is on the transactional side because clients would much rather spend, you know, money on a lawyer to help get a new deal done rather than to fight about an old deal. You only go to litigation if you, you know, as a last resort, basically. So um, while I was in law school, I had an opportunity for a summer position at a, at a large firm with an LA office in my second summer and went through their summer program and had a great time, learned a lot. And at the end of the summer, they offered me a position in their global project finance group, which is a purely transactional practice. Essentially, you're representing either banks or developers of alternative energy projects. That's, that's what that work entailed. So when I went to law school, I thought I was going to be Atticus Finch. You know, that's what I had in mind. I, you know, I grew up in this tiny little town in rural Missouri. And I thought that's what it meant to be a lawyer. You're like, you're kind of helping people in your town to, you know, defend them against cases or whatever, you know, criminal or civil cases. But it absolutely, my focus had been on doing litigation work. And that's what I had expressed when I went for that job as my interest, but that wasn't what they had available for me. And so they offered me this transactional job. And, you know, I, I was in a position where I either say yes to a guaranteed job when I graduate paying a lot of money or I say no thanks and then just roll the dice that I figure out something else. So of course I said yes. And turns out it was a lot of fun. It was really interesting. It has a lot of advantages and fits my personality, I think, in a lot of ways. Doing transactional work is much more collaborative than 
um, litigation. Litigation is very adversarial. You're, you're fighting with a kind of a zero sum uh, situation. You know, there's a winner and a loser unless you, you know, unless you settle, but the idea of settling, you know, negotiating a settlement only comes in at the end. Up until that point, you're fighting tooth and nail to win because otherwise you don't have any leverage in the settlement negotiation, right? So, so you're very adversarial in a transactional practice. You're fighting for your client's best interest, but their interest is in getting the deal done. And if you are too adversarial, the deal won't get done. It, you have to find ways to collaborate with the other side and make it so both sides win. And, you know, that's very appealing to me. And I enjoy that part of my work very much. Oh, wow. So any tips for um, maybe mid-career professionals? So I went back to grad school after I had worked for seven years and it was you know, I had to take the GRE or the LSAT, you know, kind of out when you're living life, you have to go take this test. And I was like, I'm going to fail because I haven't taken a test in seven years. So I kind of get that. But do you have any tips and tricks for maybe if you're a mid-career professional who's going to have to go back to school or wants to go back to school um, to maybe change careers? So if you have the luxury of making this choice, you know, if you're in a position where you you have a job and it's not an emergency or a, a situation where you know, you were laid off and this is the, you know, the best thing that you've been able to figure out to do next. Um, if you have the luxury of planning ahead, then put aside some extra money, do a ton of research, understand, you know, what it is you're getting into, what the best fit is for you. And, you know, in a situation where you're going back to school, is the best fit to go to the best school, the most highly ranked school, or is it to go to a school where maybe you can get some scholarship help, or maybe has a lower tuition, or maybe has a better fit in the market where you want to live. I know, especially from the law school perspective, the focus is always on go to the best school you can get into. You know, the, the best school is going to give you the best job, which gives you the best, you know, earning potential. But the reality is, most lawyers don't end up working for the largest firms. And as a result, it doesn't matter as much what school they went to. If you're, not, if you're not working for one of the big firms, then you're not competing on that level. Instead, you're looking for a job in the city where you want to work, doing the type of work that you want to do. And those types of firms tend to hire from you know, local schools. So let's say you wanted to work in Denver. You, know, you could go to Harvard and get a job in Denver. Sure, they would love to hire Harvard grads, but the reality is most of the people they hire probably go to, you know, University of Colorado or, you know, I just pulled that name out of nowhere without doing research, but I'm sure that they're not hiring from the Ivy League for most of the, of the kind of mid-level jobs in a city like that. So trying to be more strategic about the choices that you make, you know, and that's only possible if you take the time to do the research and to really dig into the situation. I always find it interesting, you know, when I talk to other folks who were broadcasting majors, a lot of us, you know, we don't stay in the industry to retirement. You know, we, we do switch careers partway through. So I always like to ask, like, what skills, you know, when you were a producer for a television station, you know, what skills in that position do you use now as a, as a transactional real estate lawyer? You know, what are those skills that have transferred over for you? So as a television producer, I was essentially a professional writer. You know, I wrote a ton of content every day. It came in the form of 20-second scripts for the anchors to read, but I was writing 
a lot of words every day and on a lot of different subjects. So I developed skills in the way of writing in really short declarative sentences, very clean, not, not a lot of adjectives kind of cluttering up the content, right? When you're writing for broadcast, you're trying to just get the point across as cleanly as you can. And it turns out that's the way you write for legal purposes as well. So that translated very well for me. And I think also the work that I did in TV where I would have to feel like I was a little bit of an expert on whatever I was writing about. So you have to be able to process a lot of information pretty quickly. Uh, and that definitely comes in handy as a lawyer because, you know, you're trying to translate the practical realities of whatever the deal is about into legal terms. So you have to be able to understand, you know, for instance, if it's a purchase contract for a piece of land for a fast food restaurant, you have to know a little bit about how fast food restaurants work to understand what your client needs, you know, what's, what's important in terms of frontage access and what's, what are you going to need in terms of utilities and visibility of your signs, you know, all, all of these very specific, but very important aspects of the business has nothing to do with the law. There's nothing in the common law about this stuff, but you have to understand what your client needs so you can negotiate the deal and make sure that the language in the contract reflects that. And I think my work in TV really prepared me to be able to do that and to have the flexibility of being able to handle, you know, a transaction involving just about anything. We're going to go back to Northwest. And one of the things that I have started asking everybody that we've had as a guest on our show is what does it mean to you to be a Bearcat? The first word that comes to my mind is family. You know, Northwest was, it was a great fit for me coming from a small town, uh, a tiny high school. Northwest was big enough that I had every opportunity that I needed to learn. I could explore all aspects of broadcasting there, you know, radio, television, digital production, but I was able to do it in a, in a situation where I knew everyone you know, I knew everyone in the program and it felt like home. It felt like a place where I was welcome and nurturing and just really comfortable. So that's, to me, that's what being a Bearcat is about. It's, it's finding that kind of sweet spot between, you know, the schools that are just enormous and where it's easy to get lost in the crowd and, you know, someplace that's too small to really give you the opportunities to do the things that you need to develop. If we happen to have any current students who want to reach out to you or ask you, you know, further questions about anything, is there a way that they can contact you? Oh, um, sure. And I'm happy to talk to anyone. Probably the, the easiest way to do that would be to send me an email. My personal email is uh, tracysteel.kc at gmail.com. You know, I'm also on Twitter. And of course, someone could reach out to me through there. I think my handle is just at Tracy Steele. And yeah, look me up. Um, I'm actually in the process of starting a new job at a firm called Freeman, Freeman and Smiley. So um, my bio will be up on their website probably by the time this podcast is released. So you can find my email at work and phone number there as well. Uh, and it will still be um, 
commercial real estate or a transactional position, this new position? Yeah, yeah same, same type of work. I'm really excited. It's a little bit smaller firm than the one I had been working for previously. And I think it's, it's going to be a great opportunity. All right. So at the end of each podcast as well, um, I'd like to give you the opportunity to just say anything that you want to say, Tracy, leave us with some good nuggets of wisdom. You know, I think these are really strange times. And I know that a lot of, uh, a lot of folks are going through difficult times as a result of you know, the pandemic and the way it has affected the way we live our lives. And I guess all I would say is stick to your plan. This will pass. Stay safe, but also stay optimistic because, you know, once we get a handle on this and things, you know, turn back to whatever normal ends up being when we're through this, there's going to be a lot of opportunity. There's a lot of business out there that is kind of on the sidelines waiting to see what happens and waiting for this all to shake out. And once it does, I think folks are going to have a chance to really, you know, try a lot of new things that we're at a, in a stage, I think where we're transitioning from, you know, the old economy to a new, more digital, more virtual based economy. And I think a lot of the lessons that we've learned from the past eight months or so are going to show us, a new way of living our lives and especially doing business in this world. And so this is, it's been a tough time, but it's also a time that is going to be full of opportunity really soon. So I think just try to be ready for that. All right. Well, thank you, Tracy. Yeah. Thank you guys. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. All right. Well, that'll do it for another episode of behind the Bearcat, And we'll talk to you next time. <laughs>